0: Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. This morning we're going to continue on with the uh, life and times of Jesus. We're going to kind of skip ahead this morning because uh, I wanted to skip past the uh, divorce text and let Trip kind of handle that next week. But today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 17 through 22. And uh, today I want to talk about, if there was was like one overarching theme for today, I want to talk about deal breakers. Now we've probably all been a part of, of a deal that probably did not work out, or possibly the cost was too high for what we were getting ourselves into, or maybe there was just an element of it that, was, that we were just unwilling to completely commit to. I had a really good friend in high school. He wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And that's like all this cat talked about the last couple of years of high school. And I remember one senior year night, I was over at his house, and this documentary came on about basic underwater demolition SEAL training, otherwise on his BUDs. You guys have probably heard of it. And this is training that happens over six months in Coronado, California. And as we're watching this documentary, there was one section that comes on about this thing called Hell Week. And it's like a a five-and-a-half-day deal where these these seals just basically go camp out on the beach. And they're carrying around logs, and they're rolling around in the sand. They get in and out of cold water and all this, this craziness. And I'm just like looking at my friend, watching him watch this. It's like watching this whole thing unfold and I can just see from his face there's no way that he was gonna commit to that. So obviously it was it was a deal breaker for him. And not to mention, these guys get like four hours of sleep over four and a half or five and a half days. Like four hours of sleep. And this guy was a napper. So I knew that he was there was no way that he was gonna commit to that. Like there's no way. There's no way. I myself, I wanted to be a rescue swimmer in the Coast Guard. I'm from North Alabama and I can't swim, okay? That's I'll tell you guys that. And I got to visit the pool where these guys actually train in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And I can see, like, these big, beefy instructors, like, drowning these little skinny students. And I I just knew at that moment I did not want to be a part of that at all. Like, there's no way I'm going to be drowning in this pool. I'll be the first student to die for sure. And so I decided I'll I'll be the guy that just kicks the swimmer out the helicopter and hoists him back up. So I thought that would be the better option for the guy that can't swim. But I, I mentioned deal breakers because this week I, I've been really wrestling with this, tech in, this text in Mark chapter 10. Um, as I look at my possessions, my bank account, my relationships, I mean, this text has kind of like flipped my world upside down. And I've been like really genuinely asking myself, is, is there a deal breaker for me? Like, will I not follow God to a certain extent? Like, is there, is there ever a deal breaker on the table or I say, Lord, I can't follow you until that endeavor. And what I want us to do today is just take an honest assessment of our lives and look at our lives in light of the rich young ruler and just see if there's a deal breaker on the table for us and just maybe ask our questions like, Lord, I'm not going to follow you into that endeavor because that's, that's a little bit too risky. Or, Lord, you know, my, my finances are on the table for you up to a, for, to, you know, to a certain extent. But once it gets past that, Lord, I... I can't, I can't go past that, you know. Is there a deal breaker if the Lord called you something radical like he does this young man here? So I just want to read the text, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, and then we'll pray. And just let, let the text speak to you. Just put yourself in this man's shoes. So verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, this is Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, at least he's a fast learner. I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack Go sell all that you possess and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Lord, uh, I know that you you speak through donkeys, <laughs> and uh, I pray that you would speak through this donkey this morning, Lord. Pray that you would anoint me for the preaching of your word. I pray that I would make your truths clear and edible. People can walk away with something here, Lord. That just help me to get out of the way, and I pray that you would be glorified and your people would be encouraged, convicted. Whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning, Lord, may you have this service. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things, Lord. Amen. Let me just get a sip of water here. So as a new teacher like myself, and a text like this before us, I want to avoid two common errors of interpretation. Number one is I don't want to universalize this passage of Scripture, meaning this is applicable to every follower of Christ throughout the history of Christianity because Jesus does not require every follower of His to sell all they have to follow Him. That's just a reality. But before we all... Breathe a sigh of relief, and comes the caveat. Because number two is, I don't want to minimize this passage of Scripture and just sort of explain it away and make it fit my own Christianity. Because the reality is, Jesus does call some people to sell everything they do have and follow Him. I think of long term missionaries, just read some books. I mean, it is a reality that Jesus does put this in people's hearts. Um, and as I was studying this week, I came across this one commentator that summed up this dichotomy. Very well. He says, The fact that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. I'll read it again. The fact that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. When you're sold out for the Lord and he gives you that command, you're like, absolutely, Lord, because I, I believe and trust that this is for your glory and for my good, for my joy. So that's what that's saying. I, I feel like that really just summed it up. So if you're feeling uncomfortable right now, don't, don't freak out. But in essence, there is no such thing as a deal breaker for those who have followed Jesus. And, and the, the question really is, are we really following Jesus? Or are we compromising the true definition of biblical Discipleship. I mean, when the Lord gives us a tough command, do we do we follow in, or do we, or do we compromise in some way, or another? But to get personal, if you guys would have let me get personal, as Jesus does, get personal in this young man's life. The more specific question is: There a deal breaker on the table in your life today? Is there anything off the table? Are you not willing to relinquish X, Y, or Z to Jesus to follow Him? And these things within themselves could be good things. Because being wealthy was not a bad thing for this young man, but his wealth had completely captured his heart. That's, 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 the, uh, that's the problem. And there was a deal breaker on the man's table. But let's, let's just kind of get into the text. And I want to paint a picture leading up to this man's encounter with Jesus. So the rich young ruler has probably heard of Jesus' ministry by this point. Jesus' ministry is beginning to come to an end. He's, he's basically, at this point, on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to make a couple stops. But at this point, he's on his way to, to Jerusalem. And by this point, Jesus' like ministry, the power, the amazingment of it, has echoed all the way from Galilee to Judea. And up to this moment, if you guys would allow me to read this, Jesus has completely healed lepers. He's healed the paralytic. He's cast demons out of a man. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two, two fish. He heals a deaf man, heals a blind man. So the, the blind see, the deaf hear, and all who hear, teaches, or all who hear Jesus' teachings, notice that he is one who teaches with authority. And up to this moment, Jesus has basically met every one of the messianic expectations. So Jesus has caused quite a buzz in the atmosphere in this little place of Israel. It's, it's like the size of New Jersey. Um. So this man, Jesus, has finally come through this rich young man's neck of the woods. So this guy's not going to pass up an opportunity to ask a question to, the, to Jesus that, that plagues his mind. So we pick up the story in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, this is Jesus going to Jerusalem. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So I want to unpack two things here from verse 17. I want to talk about the man and his question. So without a, doubt, without a doubt, the man before us is quite a prospect that Jesus could have added to his ministry crew, because at this point, Jesus is rolling with mostly fishermen and a tax collector, okay? But, but regarding this man, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention him and his credentials. So they all thought this story was very important. Um, We're told that he is rich in each of the Synoptic Gospels. We're told that he is young in Matthew's Gospel. And we're told that he is a ruler in Luke's Gospel. Thus we get the title, rich, young, ruler. But not only is he young and wealthy and a ruler, but apparently he's also ambitious and sincere. As we can see from the text, he runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. I can't remember the last time I ever did that to anybody, but he's pretty sincere. He's pretty ambitious. So we have a rich, young, ambitious, sincere ruler. And to add to his resume, he's concerned about eternal life. And not only that, in verse 20, we see that he zealously keeps the law. So without a doubt, this is an amazing candidate for the spread of Christianity within the first century. Would you guys agree with that? A rich, young, ambitious, sincere, law-abiding man, boot, he's seeking after eternal life. You would think the man and Jesus would get along just fine. But despite all this, the man makes an amazing arrival, but a pretty distressed departure. And even more crazy, you guys notice that Jesus does not chase after the guy. He didn't lower the level of commitment to get the guy to stay, Jesus didn't Offer a suggestion. Jesus didn't even give the guy a compromise. Jesus simply revealed a deal breaker for this man's full surrender to God. So that's the man. Let's look at the question. He says, good teacher, what shall I do, notice the emphasis, to inherit eternal life? Now the real meat of this text deals with salvation because the man is concerned about eternal life. That's why he's here to talk to Jesus in the first place. But the key is he he feels a disconnect between his credentials in religion and the definition of true salvation. Otherwise, he wouldn't be here. He feels a disconnect in his life. And interestingly, if you you look in Matthew's account, Matthew gives us another detail of the question. Matthew's Gospel tells us, he says, What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? The man is focused on how he can close, close the gap between himself and God. That's what the man is concerned about. And as Trip was talking last week, he, he said that only 2% of the world, by definition, is atheist. So that leaves the rest of us at least in the category of agnostic, if, if not religious. And this is a question that plagues over 95% of the world. How do I inherit eternal life? Or, or some form of the question. Eternal life, it's, it's in every man's heart, eternity. And most people have a theology like this man here. How do I bridge the gap between God and myself? What good deed must I do? What pilgrimage do I need to make? Do I need to give X dollars to charity? What good deed do I do to close this gap between myself and God? Because I feel a disparity in my heart. But you can't do, 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 do. Jesus points out to the man down in verse 21, we'll get there later, his need to fully surrender to God. But up to this point, we have Jesus who's about to leave for Jerusalem. We have an eager seeker of Jesus with what I really, truly believe. He has a sincere question about eternal life. I don't think this guy's smug in any way. I think he's here because he's heard of Jesus. He believes in Jesus, maybe. And he's got a question for Jesus. And we have a conversation that, that probably played out less than three minutes. And this conversation probably radically affected the rest of his life. So we have Jesus, a young man, and a conversation. Verse 18 and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Often when I read like, through the Gospels and like, people ask Jesus a question, he's like, he just comes out of left field. It seems like all the time, it's like you, you don't even think you're in the same conversation with Jesus. But what he wants us to do, he wants us to think. He always goes straight to the heart of issue. He cuts off the fluff and he goes straight to the heart. He says, why do you call me good? And it should provoke thought in our hearts. He wants us to think and he wants the man to think. And Jesus is communicating two things with his response here. Jesus is communicating, number one, I'll explain this, but Jesus is communicating that he will not allow people to render him as good unless they are also willing to acknowledge him as God. You, you simply cannot render the man of Jesus as merely a good teacher unless you acknowledge him as God. And I'll explain that, because if you do any elementary study of the Gospels, I mean, it will allow you to come to this conclusion, whether you believe in the deity of Jesus or not, by his own words, by his own definition, he does not afford man merely the opportunity to reduce him to a good teacher, but only as God, who alone is good. And according to his own words here, and if you think about it, no good moral teacher says the sort of things Jesus said. I mean, some of the things that Jesus said were completely off the wall, like nutty. But when you ponder over them in light of their context, and the context of what the Bible teaches, and the context of reconciliation between holy God and a sinful man, the things that he speaks are overwhelmingly profound and weighty and quite often and oftentimes it's it's very difficult sometimes the truth is kind of inconvenient but like the man in our story this is what most people reduce Jesus to just another good moral teacher i know that's exactly what i did in my life before i really got to know jesus and i had a conversation with him i just put him on the shelf with buddha and confucius mother teresa he was right next to mother teresa cuz you know like the same crew there but I just place them up on their shelf, you know. And we try to place him in this like, this like a good guy, toss some good things, lived a good life, cool, whatever, but we never really search him out and just leave him at the surface level. But we could ascertain that Jesus would not receive such praise from you or me if we were merely to attribute goodness to his name without acknowledging him as God. As, the, as Lord, as Alpha, the Omega, the King of kings, the one who's worthy of every possession we have. C.S. Lewis, a brilliant mind from another day. He probably, maybe you've heard of him, but he taught at Oxford University and Cambridge University. He wrote several amazing books. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, go get that today and read it. It's a really good book. But he's an atheist who turned to faith in Jesus. Mr. Smarty Pants, too good for his his own brainy quotes but he wrote this famous quote concerning the deity of jesus and it's often referred to as the trilemma and what i'm trying to do here is to show that god you can't you cannot just attribute goodness to the name of jesus and he he i'll just read the quote let me get a sip of water real fast sorry i'm like super dry my sense of humor is too um All right, this is what he says. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And here's his counter argument. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, that's That's C.S. Lewis talk. That's from another decade. Sorry about that. I couldn't leave it out. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But, let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not attend to. The trilemma is often summed up like this. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord, but certainly not just a good teacher. And any secular philosopher should come to that same conclusion if he honestly looks at the Gospels and looks at what this cat said. All right, let's move, let's move to the second thing. The second thing Jesus is communicating is found in the latter half of verse 18. He says, no one is good except God alone. So from this we can sort of make an obvious conclusion on what Jesus is communicating. He's communicating, number two, no matter how hard you try keeping the commandments or, or some sort of moral standard, you would still lack. You would still lack the true definition of goodness. And oftentimes we think of goodness on like this sliding scale. Like down here we have terrible, and then we get really bad, then we get bad, then you, you start to break the plane at decent. I'm like right here. And then you get good, and you get really good, and then up here you got like angelic, and down here at terrible you got either like your Hitler and your Stalin, and then up here at angelic you got people like my wife and just Justin Bieber, whatever. But I'm just kidding. My mom, whoever, Winter, Matthew Kale, shout out. <laughs> um, but, see, but God doesn't. He doesn't operate this way. He, God has two categories. He has sinner and sinless. And what Jesus is communicating is that the only person in the sinless category is God. Jesus Christ is the only one in the sinless category, meaning that the rest of us fall quite short into the sinner category. Now, this is from a perspective of God. I mean, you can still have the human perspective of the sliding scale, but ultimately... The opinion that matters is God's opinion, right? So, they're sinner and sinless, and I'm absolutely at the bottom on the uh, sinner. Jesus says, "Don't call me good unless you believe I'm God, because only God alone is truly good." Verse nineteen. So now Jesus is gonna—he's gonna lead this man to discover these truths. Verse nineteen. He says, "You know the commandments." Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, interestingly, interestingly, Jesus only, if you guys notice, he only quotes the second half of the Ten Commandments. And I'm going I'm to bring that up towards the end of the discussion why he does that. So let's go to verse 20 real fast. He says, and he says to him, teacher, like I said, he's a quick learner. Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. So now before we completely try to dismantle this young man and think that he's like some sort of arrogant elitist, it may be a real possibility that this young man did keep the commandments. Maybe he was raised in in a righteous Jewish family and from a little lad he was trained to follow the commandments. I mean, if it's just a religious external checklist, maybe the young man was crushing it. It would not be unlike what the Apostle Paul said over in Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament, formerly known as Saul. He's a great, great religious leader, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's the kind of guy that made the Pope look pretty grimy. But he writes this section of Scripture as a Christian about his own life before he truly knew the goodness of God, before he saw himself rightly before God, and before he turned to faith in Jesus. He says this, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, meaning human ability, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. If if Paul had an online dating profile, that would have been the caption right there. Like Hebrew date, first century. Like that would have been that would have been his caption. So it may be a real possibility that this young man did keep the commandments on a surface surface level as as Paul did in his pre conversion. But I want you guys to notice the next few verses, and this is what Jesus thinks about him or what Paul thinks about himself after he has that conversation with, with Jesus on the Damascus Road. So in light of these things he writes in verse seven I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I have become righteous through faith in Christ. So we would talk to Paul, like, look at that first paragraph, and Paul, like, what what happened to all of your I greater than he theology? In which Paul would quickly respond, well, I had a conversation with Jesus, and I found out the man was greater than I. And I just truly pale in comparison to the goodness of God. Um, you guys kind of see that there? Paul and this young man? I mean, maybe it was a real possibility that he was keeping the law on just an external sort of level. And as any conversation with Jesus goes, he always sheds light on the heart. He always looks past the external. He looks past the public. He looks past our own preconceived notions as Jesus did in Paul's life and as he's about to do in this young man's life. Verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So this response from Jesus may seem absolutely radical, kind of crazy. And and the truth is, it is. I mean, we look at this and we say, wow, that is so hard that he would be asked to give everything up, everything that he obtained, not just stuff, but his reputation and his status, because when his things goes, those two things are going to go with it, to follow Jesus. And I want us to think about this just for a second. I want us to kind of step back from the text and just think about this from a human perspective. And I feel like this is just what we do as people. We give up all of our time to follow something we treasure. It's completely normal to see people make sacrifices, radical sacrifices, when they find something of great value, something worth seeking and following. It seems like there's no deal breaker between them and that thing. There's no deal deal breaker between them and attaining that goal or, you know, being in that relationship, whatever it may be. And that thing, whatever it may be, comes in various forms at different times of life. And we see this in relationships and careers, hobbies, reputation, business, status, whatever. There's no deal breaker between you and that thing. People are searching for fulfillment and purpose. People are searching for joy and love. And people are ultimately searching for meaning. And they're willing to give up radical time and resources to capture that thing. So Jesus' command is not really contrary to our own human nature, if you really think about it. But it is contrary to our own human nature when we're asked to put God first. That's when the human heart says, that's a deal breaker. I'll accept God into my life as a sort of an add-on, as long as He doesn't rearrange my life in any sort of way. I don't mind following Jesus as long as this thing is not off the table. But Jesus is asking this man and us today, if you're not a Christian or a follower of Christ, he's asking you to follow something that will last, something beyond the grave. And if you are a Christian today, he's asking you to live a life that counts. He wants you to be his ambassador, to remove whatever lies between you and him. Now I want us to look at a parable to kind of put all this in perspective. It's over in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It's just one line. but Jesus here gives us a parable that gives us a vignette into what the kingdom of God looks like. From a a perspective of present reality, this is what it looks like when a man or woman finds the kingdom of God in their own lives. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So imagine, imagine with me. use you your imaginations. One day you're just walking through a field, okay? You got your dog with you, whatever, rolling with your buddy, and then you, you just trip. And it, it's like a massive pot of gold. You, just, you look down and there's like gold coins and they're like bigger than your head. You Just tripped over a big pot of gold, and you would you would think there would be a leprechaun that would just like just run away from it or, or whatever. But you trip over a massive pot of gold, and and you just kind of look around, and no one else is there. No one else sees this pot of gold but you. It's you and a pot of gold and your dog. So you start covering that thing up, throwing grass on it, dirt, dirt, everything. Just you want to cover it up, okay? And, you know some undisclosed land. So then you start cruising back into town, and you start the process of selling your house. Sell your house. And and then you sell your car. You start draining out all the investments. You're sure to sell all your spouse's stuff. And people and family and friends, they begin to think that you've absolutely lost your mind. They start calling you crazy and even worse behind your back. But despite all this, despite all the chatter, you track down the owner of this land And he says, you you want that land? You want that land? And you you would just say, I have a hunch. Like, I feel like this is the land I want. And you give everything you have, everything, because you know the true, true value of the land. Do you see the picture that Jesus is painting with this parable? I mean, it's when a man or woman finds the kingdom of God in their heart, It's like a true treasure. And what if you just like quickly went home to quickly forget about what you had found in that field? And and you were just content with what is junk compared to what you had just seen in that field. That would be an absolute tragedy. Uh, Winston Churchill said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. God help us to see true treasure. God help us to see the truth. That you are the true treasure. And the truth is, Jesus does not call us to radical abandonment because material things and wealth are bad. But Jesus calls us to radical abandonment because He is infinitely good. He brings fulfillment, purpose, joy, love, meaning. He brings salvation. He brings the reconciliation between God and man. He is the one that closes that gap. But knowing these things often doesn't make the choice any easier as we continue on verse 22. But at these words, this is probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. We don't know how long this entire scene took to play out, but I could just imagine the man just kneeling there. Like taking stock of his life, thinking about all the things that he had, and he was like, I, I, "I think the man was truly wrestling with these things in his heart." But, but then he he gets up and he decides with his feet, and he slowly walks away. And even more crazy, as we said earlier, Jesus does not chase down the guy. Jesus doesn't like lower the level of commitment to get the man to stay. Jesus does not give a suggestion. Jesus doesn't even offer a compromise. But he lets the man walk and jesus simply revealed something that was a deal breaker in this man's life this man's full surrender to god so he walks away and he leaves a question mark on his life and if you notice earlier i talked about the ten commandments he only quotes the last six and interestingly if you know the ten commandments they are basically divided in two different sections the first four deal with our vertical relationship between us and god And the second half deal with the horizontal relationships, meaning us and people. And the law could be basically summed up in two commandments. Love God with all your heart and love others as yourself. So when Jesus gives this radical command, he stops the young man dead in his tracks by his own decision to walk away and reveals to the young man that he was already owned by another God. For this man, it was the God of money. This man was trying to serve God and money, and Jesus, as the master physician, reveals that this young man had broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And as a master physician, Jesus shows him the cure. But sadly, the young man grips his idol, and, and he slowly walks away. And Jesus has just shed, on this, he just shed light on this man's heart. You see, the commandments only give us a picture of what we really look like, but the Lord looks much deeper. He always sees the heart. This man was interested in religion, but not a relationship. He was interested in following God as long as this thing was not off the table. And he walks away from that thing from which he was seeking. He walks away from the source of eternal life itself. Now, like I like to think that maybe the man... Maybe eventually he did respond. Maybe he heard of what Jesus did in Jerusalem weeks later on the cross, how Jesus died and atoned for his sins and the sins of the world, and how he rose from the grave and, and, and empowered some disciples to go on a mission. Maybe he reevaluated his, his possessions in the light of the goodness of Jesus. Maybe he cast down his I I like to think that maybe he reevaluated. But the truth is we really don't know as we really never know how much time we, in our own lives, how much time we have to respond to the Lord. I mean, we really never know how much time we have to respond. But the question is, as as I said earlier, is there a deal breaker for you and God today? And, And the scary thing is, with the deceitful nature of our own hearts, many of us have decided with our feet. As the young man did, and and we've decided by our actions, and we've decided by the things that we're not doing or the things that we are doing. However subtle that rejection might be, there is a deal breaker on the table for you right now. And if this is you, I would, I would encourage you to wrestle with these things and find grace in the presence of God, because there is grace and love for those who respond to these sort of things. And as we begin to wrap this thing up, I want to look at verse 21. This is probably my favorite verse in this whole deal. This is from the New Living Translation. It says, looking at the man, Jesus felt a genuine love for him. Like I said earlier, I like to put myself in the Bible. And I can only imagine what it looked like, the, the Son of God, his eyes looking into this young man's eyes. Like the Son of God looking into the, to his own creation that he came to redeem. I mean, because at this point, Jesus is weeks away from the cross where He would actually display that genuine love. And His love for us makes salvation possible because we cannot redeem ourselves through our goodness. But Christ has redeemed us through His goodness. And one of my favorite pictures of eternal life is over in John 17, chapter 3. And the context of this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The the um, eternal life is often pictured in different ways, but... Jesus says emphatically what eternal life is. He says, this is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is salvation. It is to know God, to really know God and to treasure God above everything else in our lives. There is no deal breaker for God's love for us. I mean, if Jesus is a reality in your life, and you think about this man in the first century, came to live the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we were supposed to die, and then rose again, and put us on a mission. I mean, that's that's radical love. Leaving the comforts of what king leaves his throne to go die. So he leaves heaven. I mean, that's radical, radical love. There's no deal breaker on the table for God and our love for Him. But Excuse me. I want to ask: Is there a deal breaker for your love for him? And oftentimes we do wrestle with particular things in our lives. And I want to just, i want to shut this whole thing down on a quote from A. W. Tozer. Uh, he writes in this book, *The Pursuit of God*. Now, A. W. Tozer—To know about this man, this guy—A. W. Tozer loves some Jesus. Like this guy was on fire for God. But I want you guys just to. I'm just going to read this prayer that he puts in this book. He says, O God, I have tasted Thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace, and I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want Thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me Your glory, I pray Thee so that I may know Thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me the grace to rise and follow Thee up from this misty low land where I have wandered so long. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your grace and Your love Thank You for the cross, Lord. And we thank You that we are forgiven, Lord. And we are saved by grace through faith, Lord. But I pray that we would press into You and we would actually experience salvation day by day, Lord. It wouldn't be an abstract thing, but it would be a reality in our lives, Lord. So, Lord, if there is a deal breaker with any man or woman here today, Lord, I pray that You would meet them in this place now and Your grace would just flood their hearts, Lord, because there's nothing of greater value than knowing Jesus. So Lord would you would you fill us with your spirit, Lord, would you would your presence just rain down in this place as we begin to worship you? We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We praise you and we give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus Christ's holy precious name we pray these things. Amen.